Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. So today on our podcast, we will be interviewing Dr. Peter Gibson. And the subject is the FODMAPS diet, which some people may not have heard of. Yes, it's a really unusual and I'd say strict uh, elimination diet, but it can be very useful for people who have irritable bowel syndrome especially, but also some people with inflammatory bowel and celiac. Good. Well, let's, let's hear what he has to say. Fantastic. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Peter Gibson, who is Professor and Director of Gastroenterology at the Alfred and Monash University. He's also past president of the GI Society of Australia. His present research interests include inflammatory bowel, celiac disease, and irritable bowel syndrome. And a major focus of his work is on the use of diet to control gut symptoms and to influence outcomes. Today, we will be speaking specifically about the FODMAT diet. Welcome, Dr. Gibson. Thank you for, for that introduction. You're welcome. So I want to start by asking, what does FODMAP stand for and what are they? Well, the, the story behind the origin of that term is quite interesting because they are a group of short-chain carbohydrates, so in other words, sugars and little chains of sugars that are in our diet. And FODMAPS is, stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, uh, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyol that are not either not digested or very poorly or slowly absorbed into the circulation from the gut, from the small bowel. And the, they comprise things like uh, fructose, uh, lactose, if you can't digest lactose, things called polyols like sorbitol, mannitol, which are, used, uh, which are in food and also used as artificial sweeteners, and oligosaccharides, which are just short chains of, uh, of sugars that are uh, the most common ones in the diet are fructose oligosaccharides. But the, the, the key thing about it was that no one had put these together before. And when we started talking about this, you can see how it was quite difficult talking about them when there was no term to collective term for them. So that's where the, we had a little competition in the department. We said we have to have a collective term and FODMAPS won. And FODMAPS is, stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, uh, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. So by talking, by using this term, we were able to focus people's attention on the group rather than the individual. Because prior to that, everyone was focused on either lactose or fructose, and uh, putting them together was very important. And how did you come up with the idea that these uh, compounds as a group are implicated in, in various disorders of the bowel? We, we knew in the past that there have been lots of information to say that if you have lots of lactose and you can't digest the lactose, that you get symptoms like IBS symptoms afterwards. You'll get bloating, you get a change in your bowel habits, you might get pain. The same had been uh, documented for fructose. If you have a lot of fructose in excess of glucose, then, uh, then that... Uh, that's slowly absorbed, and so that used to cause the same problem. And there was plenty of information about galacto-oligosaccharides, 
uh, which are which are very rich in things like baked beans. So people knew they got wind, they got disturbed, they got pain, and uh, wind meaning gas, <laughs> and uh, that's a cute Australian term for it. It's actually British, so I blame the English rather than, uh, than us for that term. And that that all of these things did the same did the same thing. They all upset the bowels. Now, one of the problems we had was that there were then a lot of diets which have been put out there where you you just don't have the legumes which have got the oligosaccharides in them. You don't have the you you go uh, low lactose. Uh, you go low fructose, but unfortunately, those diets didn't really have much of an impact in people who had, say, irritable bowel syndrome, because they only work when you had lots of lots of them. So it would only work if you had a big glass of milk for the lactose, for instance. Whereas if you have little bits of lactose, it really didn't have any difference. And so the the idea was that since they all do the same things, and we knew they all produced uh, more water in the bowel, we knew that they produced more gas in the bowel, that because they were all doing similar things, we we may, we assumed that they would have additive effects so that you don't have to have a lot of one of them to cause symptoms. A little bit of one, if it's with a bit of another one and another one and another one, which is what happens when we eat our diet, would have an additive effect. And so the idea is that you'll get more bang for your buck, if you like, if you then restrict all of these rather than just one of them. And, in fact, that's that's the way it occurred. So that's how the ideas all came forward. And uh, they also came forward through through just dietitians experimenting in their, you know, using this in their patients, uh, saying we'll reduce this, reduce that, and uh, let's see what happens. And they happened to notice that they were doing better with this and it all fitted in with our with the with these hypothetical considerations. So that's how it all started and then we we went from there. Can you help our audience understand by giving some examples of uh, high and also low FODMAP foods? Probably the uh, uh, enemy number one is uh, is uh, onion onions and garlic and leeks and uh, of the onion family, they have these fructooligosaccharides, or what we call fructans in them. They're a real, uh, a real problem. Many wheat products have a lot of fructans in them. Beans, legumes have a lot of the galacto-oligosaccharides, which are these galactose-containing oligos, uh, short-chain uh, molecules. Fructose is uh, things like there are certain fruits that have a lot more fructose and glucose in because if you have fructose and glucose together, they get absorbed very well. We've got mechanisms of dealing with that. Whereas if you have lots of fructose by itself, it causes uh, problems. And um, and these are apples, pears, and then there are the the polyols like mannitol. There's lots in in uh, in mushrooms, for instance. Sorbitol. There's not only is it added to things like sugarless chewing gum and and candies. But they also it's present in apples and pears, and you could see that if you have you have apples or pears, they've got fructose and polyols and, and sorbitol, so they have a, a double whammy. And a lot of people did describe apples being a problem or, or pears. So so these are the sort of examples of things. But but what we do know is there are a lot of foods that have more than one of these in them. 
it's striking to me that a lot of these foods are things we generally consider healthy, apples and beans and onions, uh, the onion family. I mean, we usually think of these as rather healthy foods. Is it a good idea to eliminate these? How long do you have to eliminate them for? Well, the whole thing is that healthy food is not a one-size-fits-all thing. If you don't have irritable bowel syndrome, these are healthy foods. There's nothing, nothing a problem. They're healthy foods if you have irritable bowel syndrome, if you, if you want to put up with your symptoms. So, so the idea is that if you reduce them, you don't have to eliminate them, but to reduce them. For instance, if you want to have a schnitzel, you can have that with a bit of breadcrumbs on it, a very small dose, whereas you don't have a big bowl of pasta, which would be a big dose of, of the fructans. So the whole idea is that if you restrict all of these things, not eliminate, but just restrict them, that people seem to improve, at least if we feed people diets where we've restricted them, so we know what they're actually getting, they improve within, within a few days. Do you find that if people restrict these and there is significant improvement, is it possible at a later date to reintroduce them at a low level and find some level at which people are tolerant to them? Absolutely. The first phase of this, uh, the diet that we designed to try to address this was where we, it was really where we restricted everything. And, uh, and it was really a method, a way of telling whether people are sensitive to these things. So that was the first thing. But of course, that is not what we consider as a, as a good diet. You know, we, we'd like people to have some of these things. And also, we don't like restricting people's diets any, any more than is needed. So the second phase of the diet, which has developed after we initially showed that the first phase, this very, very almost draconian restriction phase worked, was then to reintroduce things. Because what we also observed was that some people were very sensitive to fructose, but not so sensitive to fructans, or they were very sensitive to uh, fructans and oligosaccharides, but not to fructose. So, so the idea was that some people could tolerate apples quite well, but couldn't go near an onion or a, or, or a bit of bread. What has developed is the diet in the second phase of it is then to reintroduce small amounts of each thing for instance, you would go through a phase where if you were really good on the, uh, the big restriction over the first few weeks, you would then say, let's try, uh, let's try fractans. We'll go for one of these components and you try an onion ring. And then the second day you'd have two onion rings. And if you get a lot of symptoms on that, well, then fractans are really one of the major things for you. And what we've found is that uh, as about 75% of people can actually markedly de-restrict their diet because they don't need, what they have to do is find the threshold at which they can tolerate the various uh, FODMAP uh, groups. Now, the, the other origin of all this was that when we, we, you know, put people on this diet in the early days, then we'd see them six months, 12 months later say, how are you going with that diet? And they said, oh, no, doctor, I don't use that diet anymore. I'm not on that diet anymore. I said, but how are you? I'm really good. And I'd say, well, that's good that you're not on the diet. So you have onions now. And they said, oh, no, I don't touch onions. And then uh, you say, well, you can have a, 
you know, have a nice fruit salad with apples and pears. Oh, no, no, I wouldn't have apples and pears. And so what was happening was that people were actually going, do, doing this themselves and that they, what the diet had done was to taught them what the major issues were with them and they would just avoid those things. And they weren't then on a diet where they were counting what they were eating and they were looking up everything that was on, on the food app and things like this. So basically they were on this sort of personalised, modified diet, but they didn't consider being on the diet. And so, and in fact, that is what happens. And then there was a, a recent uh, study that I, uh, I heard of where they were looking at people who'd been on the diet or were taught the diet and what happened in the future. And we, we've also done this sort of work. And what we find is that there are, you know, a, a whole group of people who say, no, not on the diet, and others who are, who are on the restrict, you know, the, the personalised thing where they went through all the phases and, and still believe they were on the diet. And what we found when we measured how much, how much FODMAPs they were actually eating in their diet, we found that, in fact, they were both the same, that they were both reduced compared with what you would expect in a healthy population. So, so the, the thing about it is that it's not a, like a, you go on this diet and it's a life sentence and you've got to be on a little bit like, unfortunately, celiac disease where, you know, you really have to, there's only one way, you have to be completely devoid of gluten for your health. Whereas here, what people are, they're going on a diet which is actually teaching them how to choose foods more wisely and, and then they can live quite happily in the longer term. There are some people, though, who have to, who really find their symptoms do require fairly strict restriction all the time, and we don't like that situation, and that's where we would certainly be utilising other ways of helping them in, in their sensitivity in their bowel. You know, psychological therapies and this sort of thing would be really good because we don't like people being strictly restricting these things in the long term. So, so you know, it's a different concept of a diet. But, uh, but in fact, it's been a very interesting revelation of how people respond to it and their concepts of whether they're on a diet or not. In integrative medicine, we also use elimination diets as a tool, and it's similar. They may be rather restrictive at the beginning, and then you test to see what foods are tolerable and what are not. Not necessarily FODMAP foods, but a wider, perhaps, variety of, of things that aren't true allergies, but may irritate the gut. Absolutely. And there are people who have been doing that a lot. I know from colleagues who do it a lot, find that it's, it's challenging because there's less form to mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And it's very hard for poor old uh, gastroenterologists who have got very poor training in uh, dietary things, and you know all about that, that we find the, the exclusion diet part quite challenging to us, whereas this is a way in which it's got a lot more form and, it's, and we know why things are doing certain things. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. During this unprecedented time managing the physical and emotional challenges of the coronavirus, the Andrew Weil Center is here to support you. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org.
cim.org slash podcast. Do you note any interactions between the gut microbiome and these kinds of sensitivities? And do you think that by adjusting the gut microbiome, you can change some of the situation? Well, let's see. Um, we'd love to say yes. There are some studies that have looked at the microbiome and the structure of it and whether you can pick someone who is going to be more sensitive to FODMAPs uh, by what bugs they have in their bowel. And there is some overlap. There is uh, There are people who respond to the diet. You might see... Uh, 80% who have got this pattern respond, whereas only 50% with this pattern would respond. But unfortunately, it's not a way of predicting who should be on the diet or not, unfortunately. However, it was then when you would say, well, if we can adjust the, the microbiome by uh, by throwing in probiotics or uh, or doing something else, even using uh, antibiotics, which are, you know, like, like Rifaxman, which has become all the rage in uh, gastroenterology, that you might be able to change the microbiome to tolerate these things better. Unfortunately, I don't think we have any information that that actually is the way to do it. What we would like would be the microbiome, of course, induces many of the symptoms by producing the gas. Theoretically, if we can change the microbiome to to not produce this gas or to not like these things, then then that would uh, be better, uh, will reduce the symptoms. The trouble with that approach is that then when you do that, then you throw in the FODMAPs and what happens is you feed the, the, the bacteria that like to uh, make the gas, they grow and you're back to square one. So, uh, so I, I'm, I'm a little sceptical about the fact that we can change the microbiome and change the, the ability to tolerate FODMAPs. I think the way to do it is just to not throw too much FODMAP at the microbiome and then it all settles down and you live in harmony. Your bowel lives in harmony with the microbiome and with your diet. <laughs> we do like harmony. <laughs> I think then when you've been speaking most recently, uh, you've probably been referring to um, SIBO, uh, small intestinal bowel overgrowth. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's an incredibly challenging problem to manage in my experience of it, because people do get better with the antibiotics and then they get worse and then they get better. And so it sounds like you feel that modifying the amount of FODMAP is a useful piece of the overall strategy, but not necessarily the answer. Well, SIBO is a very perplexing thing. Everyone wants it to be uh, a real thing. Uh, and we think it is real. The trouble is our tests for, for defining it are really very poor. The breath tests and things are, have got very poor performance, and even though there are a lot of people pushing them as being very useful, we, we've stopped doing them because we find them uh, cheaper to toss a coin than to, to do tests which are fairly inaccurate. However, if you then look at the theory, uh, you know, I mean, well, there are methods being developed to actually diagnose it with more certainty, and then we'll understand a lot more. But the theory is that bacteria in the small bowel, their major food that helps them grow, are FODMAPs, uh, fructans, particularly these oligosaccharides. So strictly speaking, what should happen is that if you reduce the FODMAPs, you should reduce the small bowel bacterial populations. 
Now, that hasn't been shown because we haven't been able to get to the right places to show that we're reducing these populations. But so I would see that low FODMAP diet is a diet for SIBO uh, in any case. The problem with the antibiotics is that, of course, they, they don't have any maintenance. Uh, you know, they, they reduce it, symptoms improve, and we don't know whether the antibiotics are doing it by changing the large bowel or the small bowel bacteria. That's the other problem. So, you know, I think I'm, I'm sure that you're uh, uh, in agreement with me that antibiotics are, you know, there might be a temporary solution for some people in difficult problems, but they're not a long-term option. And uh, we, we have a grave reservations about using antibiotics in any, any situation, any routine situation. We'd much rather keep them for people who are really struggling with their symptoms to try to get control. How about for inflammatory bowel disease? Well, this has been now very well studied. There are now, I think, three randomized controlled trials showing that, that it can improve symptoms in people who don't have marked inflammation. So then people have quiescent disease. In other words, they're, they're, the inflammation is well controlled. Who have persisting symptoms, so they're functional gut symptoms rather than symptoms due to nasty inflammation, ulceration, and so on, that that uh, at least 50% of them will improve considerably with a low-fiber diet. The, pro the issue here is that, uh, that it doesn't do anything for the inflammation itself. So it's not a treatment for inflammation. It's a treatment for the symptoms that might be an aftermath of the inflammation. Or, of course, people who have, have inflammatory bowel disease can also have irritable bowel. I mean, it's, if it's 10% of the population, 10% of people with IBS, uh, IBD might have IBS. Don't, you know, this is the, the whole concept. So we utilise it in, uh, in many of our patients who have ongoing symptoms after we've got the inflammation better. Now, the problem we have and the thing that we really worry about is the people with inflammatory bowel disease already have their, their diet and their nutrition a bit compromised. And we really don't like overly restricting people's diets in that situation. So we would never be uh, suggesting people go low FODMAP without uh, professional uh, dietary dietitian advice regarding this because, because uh, you know, restricting the diet, no matter which way you do it, whether it's gluten-free, uh, low FODMAP or whatever, if you're going to restrict the diet in someone who is already their nutrition is impaired, you, you've got an increased risk situation. And so, uh, so that's, that's always the, the uh, sort of the caveat of uh, using it in people with inflammatory bowel disease. So we've talked about irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, SIBO. Is there anything else that you think is especially amenable to treatment with FODMAP? restriction? Well, there, there was a lot of experience in uh, people with celiac disease who have been compliant with a gluten-free diet, have done well from the small bowel uh, healing point of view, but have persisting symptoms. There's one randomized controlled trial that showed that uh, low FODMAP diet was better than just staying gluten-free. Gluten-free diet, of course, does reduce the FODMAPs to some extent because you're not having the wheat-derived FODMAPs, but it doesn't reduce it enough in many people to help their symptoms. Another really fascinating area, which, which was something which we didn't believe at first, but a lot of people, uh, a lot of 
mothers uh, with children who had colic, babies with colic, said that when they went on the low FODMAP diet, that their babies were better. And we thought, now this is a little stretch, this is just a step too far. So what we did, we did a, an open trial in mothers who got children with colic, fed them a low FODMAP diet, and they seem to improve, the children seem to improve much more than what, what you would normally expect. So we did a randomised controlled trial where we gave mothers a normal FODMAP diet and a low FODMAP diet, crossed them over uh, in a random way, and we found that the colic was better in the children when they were low FODMAP. Now, now this, we still don't know the mechanism and we haven't worked out the mechanism and it's something which which only a randomised controlled trial would make us even believe this. The thing is that the low FODMAP diet in this situation is a very temporary thing because colic gets better, as you know. But if you've had a colicky child, uh, fortunately my children weren't colicky, but it really is a very, very difficult thing. And so anything that can help in that situation is, is useful. What we, of course, don't want people to do is to go low FODMAP, the mothers, and then stay that way forevermore when, you know, we was really just trying to resolve a problem in the child. I just want to connect the dots. These were breastfeeding mothers, yes? Okay. Breastfeeding. <laughs> we haven't done it. We haven't done it with the uh, with uh, formula-fed uh, children, but these, these with, with, they were 100% breastfeeding. We've looked at the different mechanisms and uh, how what the mother eats affecting what the child has. And, and the breast milk doesn't seem to be different, although we haven't measured all the HMOs, the, uh, the human milk oligosaccharides, and there may be changes in that. It was a very big diversion for us from what, what we usually do. The other area which is of, of great interest, which we're just embarking upon uh, big studies in, the people... Uh, women with endometriosis. One of the observations that has always been made between uh, is that obstetrician, uh, sorry, uh, gynecologists would would uh, yeah, have people who have got uh, lower gut symptoms with endometriosis, and they blame the endometriosis. If that person went to the gastroenterologist, they would blame the irritable bowel. And we know that people who have endometriosis do have increased sensitivity in their bowel. The mechanisms, there are lots of theoretical mechanisms, we don't know why. But one observation was in a, in a uh, study by one of our uh, nurse researchers who uh, was running a clinic in New Zealand for irritable bowel syndrome, that, that when she looked back at, at the large number of people, who women who had endometriosis and those who didn't, the ones with endometriosis did better with low FODMAP diet than the ones who didn't. And, uh, and this, this is a fascinating thing. And then when, when you look at all this, you know that people with endometriosis do tend to have more sensitive bowels. They too tend to have more irritable bowel syndrome. So this link is being made. It's not that low-fibre diet fixes endometriosis. That's, that's far from it. But it may be a strategy in which symptoms which are attributed to endometriosis can be, can be improved. And we're trying to look at what this relationship is uh, because it's uh, because in the endometriosis area there's a you know it's a difficult area and any strategy that might improve people's suffering is uh, going to be uh, very well worthwhile and and the other thing is that 
gynecologists and gastroenterologists are very sort of cool. <laughs> yeah, we don't do research across the way. It's, it's, it hasn't, hasn't been integrated at all. Is there some group of people or individuals who should absolutely avoid a FODMAP diet? Absolutely. One of the things that we were always concerned about was that in dealing with a population of people with irritable bowel syndrome, you know, there's 10, 15, 20% of people, that depends on what your referral population is, already have uh, disordered eating. I'm not talking about eating disorder, I'm not talking about anorexia nervosa or anything like that. We're talking about that they already have restricted their diet and are frightened to eat this, frightened to eat that. Uh, because because they find that food causes their problem and have been searching for uh, issues. And what you we, we have people who have referred to us who were, stopped lactose, then they uh, they stopped gluten, then they went on a vegetarian, or then they went on a uh, this diet and that diet. And they, they when what, what was happening is people tend to accumulate these dietary restrictions, and when they get the CS, they're on a chicken and, and rice diet and uh, nutritionally very poorly off and often don't eat much because to avoid their symptoms and already underweight and, uh, yeah, really a very disordered eating pattern. And so the last thing you want to do then is send that person to a dietitian to to further restrict what they have. I suppose chicken and, and white rice is okay, but, uh, but it's hardly a diet. Have you heard the term orthorexia nervosa? Orthorexia is, I love that. That, I love I, that, that, too. that was a, <laughs> published in the Journal of, um, of Yoga first, yeah. yes. Yeah. When, when I can tell you, when, I, when, we, um, when we were aware of this term and this very nice concept, uh, I had a meeting in our department, our, our seminar, and uh, with about 20 or 30 gastroenterologists there, and, I, and we presented this term, orthorexia, and everyone was nodding their head, thinking of all their patients who had this really picky eating and uh, and and it, it's uh, it's actually gaining more traction as a legitimate term. And I think that this is one of the issues that we have that our dietitians and I think all dietitians should be incredibly aware of that they have to look for these people who've got these so-called ARFID, orthorexia, or are at risk of these things, and that we don't. When you're using a restrictive diet. You, you have to know what their diet is prior to it. And most doctors are not well versed at understanding or, or picking these things. I don't, don't think about this enough. Uh, and I think the education is going on now. Certainly there's a lot of work being done in the US uh, in this area trying to increase awareness of the, uh, the disordered eating pattern. And what we would do in that situation is try to help the disordered eating before even thinking about restricting FODMAPs. And the, the psychologists have a much more important role. So that's one area that we would definitely be not be putting people on, uh, on the diet. Other areas would be that uh, where people don't want to be on a diet. It's no good sending someone to a dietitian who doesn't want to, uh, to put in the effort in that area. And there are other situations there are our dietitians won't put a person on a low-fire diet if they already don't eat very much in the way of FODMAPs. And uh, that's another thing that the dietitians got the skill of, of actually defining this with more accuracy than, than uh, poorly trained gastroenterologists who haven't been trained in, in working out dietary intake of people. 
it's a big deficiency in our training. Earlier, you mentioned um, thinking about people's psychology, and I noticed when I was preparing for our conversation that you've actually studied gut hypnotherapy as an approach. I'm, I'm really interested yeah. in what you found. Well, we know that diet, diet is not the treatment. It is one modality we have. And as you know, in all this integrated, integrative sort of approach, that this is what you know, it's, there's not one treatment for anything. And we used to, we, we got involved with using, I was very interested in gut-directed hypnotherapy. We had a couple of hypnotherapists who were very good and we had some fantastic responses. And so we needed to see whether this was, this was all sort of uh, a little bit of good luck, uh, just placebo. How did it compare with low FODMAP diet? because we had good evidence that blood from our diet worked from randomized controlled trials. So we did a trial of our, uh, our hypnotherapist. Uh, we randomized people to, to uh, hypnotherapy or to the diet or to both at the same time. And what we found was that they all three worked equally as well. And about 75% of people were really good at six weeks at the end of their course of, uh, of two dietitian meetings or their, their six weeks of weekly hypnotherapy. And then at six months, the majority, the vast majority of them were still doing really well. But what we found was that if you did them both through, through both of them at some, at people at the same time, they didn't do any better, which was a really interesting thing because you wonder why, uh, whether it's they only half do the diet or half do the hypnotherapy or, or whether they're both attacking the same sort of, uh, uh, physiology and that you can't do better. So what this study did tell us was that gut-directed hypnotherapy was not something for rescuing people who have failed everything else, that it was these were people who hadn't had much in the way of therapy in the past. And so gut-directed hypnotherapy is a very good first-line therapy, just like diet is, and just like you know, cognitive behaviour therapy and many other psychological approaches. So we're, we're very, very enthusiastic about this uh, this. Uh, you know, integrating psychological, physiotherapy, dietary, and drugs are there useful to help a few symptoms if, if necessary. And uh, I must say in our own clinic, uh, we, have a, we have an integrated uh, clinic with, with dietitians and nurse. Uh, we did have a physiotherapist and psychologist when we could afford them. Very hard to fund them in Australia, I think everywhere, in a public hospital sort of uh, setting in Australia. But, uh, but we have our hypnotherapist. We're gradually, by clinical experience, working out what is the best approach for the, uh, for the individual. And many people, it's multi-pronged. And it's a matter of the timing of when you do one versus the other. And it's been a, it's sort of, it's been a bit of a revolution, really, in how we manage IBS. And there, there have been recent, a recent study done in Melbourne at another, another hospital where they looked at uh, standard gastroenterologist one-to-one -one care versus an integrated, not integrated care in that in that they had uh, they they saw not necessarily in the clinic, but they saw uh, a psychologist, psychologist, dietitian, psychiatrist, whatever was uh, was beneficial for them, and the results were like chalk and cheese. The people who saw the gastroenterologist with a one-to-one. -one Fantastic! Didn't do any better than 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 doing nothing. 
uh, you know, really didn't improve their quality of life. The people who got the integrated care improved the quality of life very, very much. And it was quite, you know, this wasn't randomised, but it was a pragmatic sort of study which just highlights what exactly what we feel that uh, that the this integrate and I'm sure I'm sure I'm talking to the com- the converted here uh, that this integrated care for many chronic illnesses, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, chronic liver disease, all these things that is really important because it helps people cope with their illness. It reduces unnecessary things. It, it improves their mental well-being and uh, gets and improves the symptoms. And as we know, placebo is about one of the most powerful tools we have. And if we can, uh, we can enhance the placebo, someone in Boston initially coined this term that I, I love is harnessing the placebo is really, really important. And it's, it's not just that it's sort of fooling people. It's, it's also gets to the mechanisms. You know, inflammatory mechanism, all that. So, you know, this this is a really important part. Very hard to, you know, if you're trained in using a drug for everything, it's really hard to change your whole way that you manage these things in that way. And so, we're 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 working on our young trainees in gastroenterology go through our multidisciplinary clinics and are seeing the different way of doing things. And it's starting to change the medical attitude to to chronic illness. Okay, I'd say we're very philosophically aligned. Uh, you certainly have an integrative approach to chronic illness, <clears throat> and it's just wonderful to hear that you know that this is happening. Yes, and uh, the biggest problem we have, as you know, is getting the really solid evidence behind it, and uh, and it's much easier to study a drug than a diet. You know, our All the low FODMAP diet studies have been uh, criticised quite rightly on technical grounds that you just can't blind as well. It's really hard to get the precision in the scientific design. Psychological therapy is even harder. That's why we looked at low FODMAP diet versus gut-directed hypnotherapy rather than having some sort of placebo hypnotherapy. This is the real problem in, in effecting change in conservative medicine is that they all want the evidence and and the fact is the evidence is accumulating both in uh, in trials as best we can do them and then in the real world responses so it's it's, it's a hard slog as you as you are quite aware of how how to change people's views about these things particularly the funders well thank you dr Gibson for being one of the folks tackling this really challenging area of research. And um, as you said, uh, researching uh, diet, dietary patterns, um, mind, body, uh, it is not straightforward because it is hard to blind those, um, those therapies. So we really appreciate your work. And we also have to get away from this idea of uh, it's all in your head type uh, attitudes that, that were generated last century. Uh, and that's you, you often hear that in, in conservative medicine when we don't know what the cause of something is. It's either psychosomatic or it's autoimmune. So it's... Uh, I've, it's su- I've suggested using the term somatopsychic to avoid the connotation of yeah, yeah. all on the head. <laughs> but, of course, all, all illnesses have a, uh, have a, have a, a 
physical, organic, and psychological component. And um, uh, and I'm sure we can do a lot better in inflammatory bowel disease by tackling tackling a whole holistically. Well, thank you for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, really appreciate it. And uh, and thanks very much for the opportunity. As you can see, I'm quite uh, enthusiastic about uh, yeah. yeah about all of this. Thank you. <laughs> bye bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. Learn more about topics featured on the Body of Wonder podcast and how to apply them to your everyday health with My Wellness Coach, a free mobile app from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Download today at mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu. That's mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu.